before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 98. As always, joined by the three amigos, we've got Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, and Rich Diaz, Tom Brady, and Macro. What's going on? Keith? Keith, the beer garden. Saying... Tell us about the oh, beer Oh, yeah, garden. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is the way we roll, right? So uh, for to confirm, we will be hosting, uh, anybody wants to pop by for a, a pint or anything, uh, this Tuesday. So today is Thursday, of course, when we record. So Tuesday next, August 29th. Anyone want to come and join us, just send me an email and I'll send you the exact details on uh, where, where to come. So, uh, Man, you're yeah, really coming close, eh? Yeah, I know. But, you know, I'm a big time money manager and I got other things going on, which is, you know, code for Mrs. Ice Cap. And uh, it just takes up time in the summer. That's it. Anyway, anyone wants to come by, it'll, it'll be fun. So send you an email. Send me an email. Rich is going to come. I know it. Right, Rich? No. I, I, on a week, on a school night. I can't do a school night. Not right now. <laughs> Tuesday night, keg stands. One day. The, uh, beer garden. One day. Rich, what's going on? Man, nothing. Nothing at all. It's really, really quiet. Um no dates to speak of. In fact, I got blown off on one. Not sorry, that was the wrong language. Off? No, no. What I meant to say was that. So, oh boy. Anyway, Steve, Steve did that. Two of us, my friend. Oh, Steve did that down in South Carolina, didn't he? There a few <laughs> months back. What I meant to say was I was stood up for uh, for a beer this afternoon. So I think I'll just stick around uh, the office and work a little later. No, the social life has has ground to a halt. Sadly, uh, much different than London, which is a bit disappointing. But uh, it's all good. At least I have my Bloomberg to keep me warm. But no, that's it, boys. And it turns out actually this piece of art is real. <laughs> so that is a nice piece go. of art there you go it's apparently worth lots of money i wouldn't pay um, for it but someone out there would anyway there you go <laughs> yeah well i mean i think it's it is kind of like the dog days of summer right i mean it's not a like i feel like everybody's on vacation right now we've sent out emails everyone's got their out of office set up so it's we're kind of i feel like we're at this sort of point in like financial markets where we're kind of reaching this crescendo it's it's you can kind of see a building and like it's obviously i think it's going to ramp up new cycle is going to ramp up as you come back post labor day long weekend um and so i think there's like a lot of topics that obviously we'll be keeping an eye on i think the biggest one which we're going to get into later on in the show is is what's happening in the bond market um you know i think the bond market i think tells all and so you know we'll we'll get into that shortly but uh, speaking of you know summer holidays and whatnot, the, uh, the Liberal government just came back from their housing retreat in, uh, was it Prince Edward Island, Keith? Yeah, on the East Coast, I think they had it. Yeah, maybe they'll come swing by your beer garden. Yeah, I'd love like for that. those guys to come by. Well, yeah, there you go. So, so anyways. Mr. 
Mr. Prime Minister, and you and your cabinet, you're more than welcome. No, it was not the whole cabinet. Wasn't it just a select few who attended PEI? I, well, I think there was basically they were there for like a housing brainstorming session. Yeah. Why don't they, just call, they should just call Ron Butler and get it OMB. It'll be done in an afternoon. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, Ron, Ron Butler, you're welcome back on the show anytime. Um, but anyways, on the housing retreat side, just, you know, some interesting comments again, not to, to, you know, get overly political on this stuff, but you know, Sean Fraser, who's the, the former immigration guy now turned housing minister, uh, has been more vocal of late. And, and so he's come out after the, during this housing retreat and saying, yeah, you know what, maybe we should be looking at, um, the immigration side, maybe we should be looking at the foreign student side. Maybe they're creating excess demand in housing. So don't worry, we're going to review it. We're going to do some more studies and we'll get back to you kind of thing. So wait, did he really say that? I'm I'm shocked because I thought in yeah, Quebec like, that they discussed that they weren't going to, you know, push for a cap and what have you. They feel it's not best solution. Um they feel that there could be a lot of unintended consequences, which is, uh, you know, these schools will ultimately make less money. Uh, and so there's certainly the business element of that. Um, so wait but, a second, you're you're saying some of these policies they make or don't make, they may have in actual intended consequences. <laughs> so, but it's kind of interesting because every time they do a policy, they any kind of you know government entity you know that you create or gov uh, companies as well, you know you create a policy with your intended outcome, and what usually happens, Rich, the law of unintended consequences, my favorite, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because like I love this conversation because it goes into I, I looked into the books of some of the your uh, universities there a few years ago, and I didn't I wasn't aware of it at the time but afterwards i said wow it's kind of quite shocking so if people are not aware of this you know the average university in canada and you know this is average the number might be a bit different but anywhere from say 30 to 60 percent of their operating budget it comes from the provincial government so Fair they're giving enough. them yeah money money is coming through so i mean if if you're running a company and you need to be subsidized 30 to 60 percent just to break even, right? That's what these guys are doing. Um, you know, that that doesn't work. And then, of course, a lot of people say, well, universities, you know, they're not trying to run a, a profit and loss. And then you get into the American university story. But if you look at the university mix for students, I mean, there's three classes. There's uh, in-province students, out-of-province, and then international students. And if you're in charge of finance at a school, um, you know which ones has the highest margin on it, of course. You know, it's the international kids. So let's just say it costs ten grand a year for tuition for a, a local uh, student to go to school in their in their province. An out of province kid might pay sixteen to twenty, something like that. An international student could be up to forty thousand. My numbers might be a bit off, so feel free to share with us. So it's it's not surprising that you know all of a sudden universities are just you know trying to gobble in as many international students as they can because they need the revenue. So maybe we just simply need a new structured education system, right, Rich? Yep. No. Well, we. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, to definitely. Get, to kind of get Go to ahead, that season. point, though, we've had. Um, 
I've had a, we've had a few guests or not guests, but people that are listeners of the show have actually, you know, called us up and, and, you know, said, Hey, listen, I'm on, I'm, I work in the immigration side and, and these are the problems. And, and so a lot of the conversation again, uh, agree, disagree, um, from these people that I would say are more experts in their field and industry have essentially said that, you know, you know, these schools are, are really ultimately exploiting, um, this program. Uh, they're explo- exploiting some of these students uh, for profit, and it is a very profitable business. Is these basically these private colleges? And so there was actually a, some great a great chart here from so Mike Moffat. Uh, if you haven't been following Mike Moffat, he has been very very vocal on Twitter. Uh, he's been documenting sort of the housing supply side of things in particular over the last couple of years. He was actually invited to the housing retreat in PEI to, as a sort of a expert witness, so to speak, uh, to actually chime in on the housing file. And so one of the things that he's noted uh, is specifically in Ontario, where he's from, is the Ontario International Student Boom. Uh, and it actually shows the number of study permits issued um, to colleges, not universities, but colleges in Ontario is like literally off the charts. It's just like complete hockey stick. So like something is going on basically since uh, really since kind of 2019 and it exploded um, just after COVID. And so, um, you know, he's kind of highlighted this as basically it it comes, it's, it's kind of complicated for, for people listening to this podcast, but essentially the federal government introduced policies to allow more of these sort of students, quote unquote, to enter the workforce or labor force. And so vis-a-vis opening up sort of that criteria has created this boom um, where people are almost using students as temporary foreign workers. How how dare you? They They would never break such rules or bend the rules or do anything like that. I mean, that is just, I'm shocked that someone would take advantage of a loophole as magnificent as that. Um, is it affecting Rich, Rich, rent? You sound you sound <laughs> condescending when you say it that way. Condescending or condescending? <laughs> I tried to say the right one, but which one did I not say? Uh, but wait, Steve. I mean, a serious question though. I mean, did he go to the next um stage and say, number one, are these kids actually going to school, or are they just um, you know, are they signing up for a class and then heading out to get a job? Again, not necessarily a bad thing if they have a place to live, but we know that they don't. So did he sort of um, articulate like sort of the next step and what's going on there? Uh, I mean, it's, it's it's a lot to unpack like a podcast, but I'd really just encourage people to go follow Mike Moffitt. Um, you know, he's been quite vocal about this and maybe we'll get an immigration person um, that can come on the show and explain sort of, I think, the dynamics of what's happening with these Again, smaller private colleges that I think are ultimately exploiting uh, the program for profit, and and again, a lot of sort of the playbook is ultimately created by the federal government allowing a lot of these policies um, in place, or by changing the rules. Uh, these private institutions found creative ways to sort of exploit it, and and again, these private institutions obviously don't have a mandate or aren't responsible for creating housing supply for these people, right? That's pushed back onto the municipal governments uh, and the private sector to to pull up the socks and build housing. But clearly, uh, we know what's happened, right, over the last uh, 
particularly over the last year or two, which is a million people a year coming into this country and um, housing starts now completely rolling over. If you look at building permits on a national basis, um, I think they're the lowest they've been in like 10 years. So housing, you know, and that's, that's predominantly a factor of the cost of capital tripling in the last 18 months. Hey, wait a uh, second. Is- Are you saying the number of permits being issued are the lowest is the lowest number that we've had over the last 10 years yeah so if you look at residential building permits um on like a six month rolling average uh over the past so it's basically at the lowest levels and i believe it's over a decade now on an absolute level so if we had ten thousand ten 10 years ago now yeah. we have nine thousand. like that's the direction so why is that then see because i would imagine with Again, with the population growing and you know, with the rate cycle and stuff like that, there should have been more permits issued. I I just think it's the the private sector ultimately uh, looking at it and saying, like, are these projects financially feasible when like the cost of your capital rises? It tripled. It tripled. Um, you know, again, you can say, well, it tripled off of off a low, you know a low base it doesn't matter it tripled and like i think your financing costs on a on some of these projects are huge input costs it's and kind of interesting because this ties in with the canadian bank earnings that started the trickle into the market today yeah well, I mean, it's all tied together these are the unintended consequences that's the theme today right i think so wait till the panda waddles in and just tips over the tables and everything <laughs> The best gift ever, so, by the way. Yeah, again, but it's, it's, it's not just cost of capital, right? Steve, you've mentioned to us it's a lot of the taxes and the fees that they have to pay, as well as the time to get um zoning and permits and all this stuff. I think it's it's sort of I think it's a sort of an unhappy marriage of several sort of factors, but obviously the cost of capital is one of them. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just looking at the chart right now. Residential building permits, six month trend, seasonally adjusted, constant dollar. Um, yeah lowest levels dating back to 2011 so yikes there you go um you know again there's a decent amount of the units that are already under construction certainly elevated um those are those will continue to get built and completed over the next uh several years um so i suppose that pipeline uh is is probably okay but it, it's you know you're you're sowing the seeds of a future housing supply crunch today uh, as building permits roll over because you know to go from you got to go from a permit to a housing start to a housing under construction to a housing completion and that's you know typically a three to six year cycle. And to be clear, these is this is multifamily that you said that there's lots of completion underway, or sorry, excuse me, there's lots of construction yeah, underway. Units under construction multi- is predominantly multifamily, um, right? Versus units. single family. And and I, I think if you really unpack that further, it's because people aren't really building single family houses in Vancouver and Toronto predominantly because it's just too expensive now, right? I mean, you're going to build okay. one single family house and sell it for two and a half million dollars. It's just it doesn't work so the, the 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 mix of housing has switched from you know single family which would have been 10 15 years ago has switched to predominantly you know condos townhouses things of that nature okay great so in a country the second largest country in the world everybody's going to be living in a one bedroom condo <laughs> just checking <laughs> that's Sorry, a, 
<laughs> Go ahead. You're you're being condescending again, aren't you? <laughs> I am. Um, let let's switch over to be uh, have a nicer view on things. So, Steve, with the uh, the I guess the retreat that the uh, that the government had in in PEI this week or whatever, what what's coming out of it? Have you heard any? conclusions or solutions or anything along those lines um, and just try to rebase it again i mean the, the reason for this special retreat was because um increasingly now more people are actually starting to blame ottawa for creating inflation whereas the narrative beforehand that you know inflation was caused by other factors that were out of control so I, I think it has been a great conversation that people are becoming more about aware of the you know the population growth rates going from zero to five and all that stuff. So it, I find it interesting that all of a sudden they're saying, "Hey, we need a solution for a problem we may have contributed to." Was that right, Rich? Did I do that right? Perfect. Yeah. Okay. You're on a roll today. I know, okay, well, and it's the dog days of you're, you're making up for you're making up for my sluggishness here out of the gate. But th- so thank yeah, yeah. You. But what came out of it, Steve? What was the action point they have? Another the official, meeting. Another meeting. The official right? Bloomberg headlines, not my headlines. Bloomberg's headline says, "Quote: Trudeau tells Canadians to stay tuned on housing solutions." Uh, so, no solution as of right now. I suppose um, more discussion, more researching. You know, they specifically on like the the student foreign student thing, and is it contributing to excess demand in the housing market? Um, if you read through Mark Miller's comments, the immigration guy and Sean Fraser, they both said, "Well, listen, okay, we've identified it may might be a problem. We now need to go and consult with these um, colleges and universities to make sure that uh, we don't upset them." And so I, I don't think any solutions coming anytime soon. They've just acknowledged Canadians uh, anger, I suppose, or, or comments over the past three, four, five years denoting this, this issue. So they say, we hear you and we're, we're going to bring solution. Now, one of the solutions I am hearing about, and this is certainly uh, one of the reports that Mike Moffat actually co-wrote and which I think got him a seat at the housing retreat um, was alleviating some of the taxes and development charges that are being charged by these governments. Um, Because if you think about it, well, if your cost of capital is tripled, like we need to cut expenses somewhere else in order to make these projects financially viable. And so one of the big conversations is removing GST on purpose-built rentals. So, you know, again, there's there's a 5%, there's potentially a 5% savings there. Um, but one second. Tough. Here's the reaction. <laughs> <laughs> what? what? We haven't there done that go. yet, have we, on the podcast, right? Uh, no, we have not. I think that's. You know, I think it's... we need. You know, somebody insert the laugh track here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you know, here is what I'm hearing, and again, it's great. They're trying to come up with a way to, you know, change the supply side of, of the challenge that we have. And I'm just like, I think they're just little small minute moves and that's not going to make a difference and they need to be very dramatic with this and you have to slow down the demand side of it and you know it's not pro or anti anything but if the immigration numbers are 1.4 you know cut it down to 400 grand again sorry 400,000 for two or three years get when you have the capacity to grow again that's when you do it 
But uh, you know, this, this is just treating the, the the symptoms here. Like Keith. giving someone a break on a GST tax credit, that's that's yeah. not going to encourage anyone to start ramping up supply. I think it's going to make very minor difference, but uh, slight difference, but minor difference, not enough to treat the problem. I think ultimately, though, the panda in the room is you kind of need lower prices. Well, that's uh, what I wanted to say. Yeah, like that's that's the thing about affordability, right? I think it was one of the first podcasts I ever talked about, which is if housing affordability means your house price falls relative to your income. And I, I submit to you, sir, that absolutely no politician genuinely wants that to happen especially when you're about to enter an election cycle. Because if tomorrow house prices were to fall 25%, let's say in Toronto or in Vancouver or what have you, which is their what their strongholds in what is going to be a very hotly contested election, I would imagine a lot of people who've been, you know, either bought houses would be negative equity or what have you, I think would, would they, they would not take Kylie to that. And the other thing I think is, and Keith nailed it right on the head. I mean, they've made immigration a cornerstone of their growth um, project, their growth sort of strategy. Again, what matters, the only thing that matters in life is productive, is per capita GDP growth or productivity growth. And for them to do sort of a vault fast would would just, would, they would crystallize and and make it very, very clear to everyone that they've made a huge, huge mistake. So I, I I'm with, Keith on this. I don't think any of this is going to change. <laughs> I don't think so this, all the streets you but want. Let's do a uh, analogy that, you know, a lot of Canadians would relate to. So this is a hockey game, right? <laughs> and the housing price, the housing market like 2 nothing, 4 nothing, 6 nothing and early in the second period or late in the first and you you got to stop this real fast. So all of a sudden, you know, Chris Pronger is on your team. And the housing market is coming across the blue line, and he's just going to step into it and stop it in its tracks. So that that's what we need. Again, we need something here to. That was a horrible analogy. I thought it was <laughs> good. Pronger instead of trying is... to instead of trying to score some goals to catch up, first of all, you you stop the score from going up. Ah, there we go. Okay, that's right. Better. Yeah. See, I'm old school hockey, right? Defense yeah, first. No. You yeah, could use like great. a goalie reference or something. Yeah, like that's that. what I was gonna say. <laughs> a goalie reference? Which? Oh, how boy. would it go? How would it <laughs> okay, go? Okay, let's. The coach put the wrong goalie in, and if you're gonna pull the goalie, it means you, you made the bad decision. The coach made the bad decision, and you're crystallizing. Whoa, whoa, that. whoa! You can't Anyways, blame the goalie. I think we need to immediately change. <laughs> you used to blame the goalie. Oh man, blame the goalie. You never blame the goalie. That's not fair. Anyways, rounding out our housing. Steve <laughs> is not interested in this stupid conversation. It's always is the goalie's. It's always the goalie's fault. But rounding out the uh, the housing conversation here is. Um, Again, yields yields continue to push higher. So if you fixed rate mortgages across the board, uh, moving up by another 10 to 20 basis points across pretty much all Canadian banks this past week. Um, and so you're seeing the strain on housing affordability, right? Because prices, for the most part, haven't really adjusted. Uh, so on a national basis, this is a chart from Ben Rabideau. Uh, I think it was actually shared by uh, Pierre Polyev in his recent uh, housing interview. Uh, but he notes that uh, since basically uh, 2015, the monthly mortgage payment on a typical home using the MLS National Home Price Benchmark and assuming 80% loan-to-value, 30-year amortization, using your average five-year mortgage rate, um, has gone from just under $1,500 per month 
to today sitting at uh, just under about $3,400 a month. So you've more than doubled since um, since basically 2015. But wait a second. Wait a second. That, that's an interest rate set by the Bank of Canada. So I think that that's sort of no. We're using your. Things, we're though. using the. So his calculation is using the markets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, but the the but the Bank of Canada sets that rate, and then you add a spread no, no. as you described, right? No, no. The five year mortgage rate set by the Canada five year bond yield. He's okay. he's 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 no. He's gone back and he's used typical. There's 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 like there is a. Um, a whole bunch of calculations out there. He's used the typical, what's the advertised five-year mortgage rate across all the Canadian banks? What's the average today? So I can tell you the average today is about 6%. So he's using the average five-year mortgage rate going back over the last, you know, seven, eight years and saying, okay, well, if I apply the five-year fixed mortgage rate and apply it against the home price index for that specific time, what was the average what was the typical mortgage payment across this country? So anyways, that's where we're at today. Housing housing affordability still stinks. Um, let's move across the globe, Keith. Let's get out of this uh, Canada stuff. Everybody's sick of it. You're sick of the Canadian stuff? I just think you, you guys need to uh, get back to another cool analogy. And that will no, do please. <laughs> okay, let's move uh, around the world. Do what do we yeah. want to look at? We have um, jokes aside. Today is Thursday. We didn't we talked about this beforehand, but by the time the podcast is announced tomorrow, the Federal Reserve of Kansas City they're they're hosting what, what's called their own their conference every summer. It's at a place called Jackson Hole, which is a nice place to go. Uh, so by the time you're listening to this now. Jay Powell, so the chair of the Fed, he would have already spoken. So he'll do maybe a five-minute speech. And uh, whatever he has said, right? I'm talking in the past now for the future. Right, Rich? Yeah. Yeah. You with me? <laughs> um, yeah. That Everything we're talking about now could be blown out of the water a little bit. And so just remind everyone, what last year, this exact same setup, he was not pleased because the market was not taking him serious in terms of wanting to hike interest rates. And the market kept saying, hey, you're finished hiking. You know, we're going to, you know, party like it's 99 again and, and all that. And he did, I think his speech was two and a half minutes. That was it. He invoked uh, Paul Volcker. He was the chair of the Fed back in the early 80s. And one thing that Volcker did, people think, oh, yeah, you know, he slayed inflation and stuff like that. Um you know, the bank stories was that he did it, but he he tried to do it and then he failed and then he did it again. And he had success. And of course, if you're really into your monetary history, you could probably also figure out that he didn't, you know, stop inflation at all. It would have petered out anyway, just by the way the economy is going and all that stuff. But the American economic data, I know we talked about it last week with the uh, GDP estimate comes out of the Atlanta Fed. Uh, that's still really strong. Economic growth is, is still good in the US. So there there is the potential for Powell to come out again and, and try to sound hawkish again. Now, whether the market anticipates it or interprets it that way, again, we know by now because it's already happened. But uh, this is one of the big 
data points that's coming out. And as, as you say, hey, let's go around the world. So what else is happening here? Because the whole world is is just synergized right now. And as the Americans continue to raise overnight interest rates, or they imply that they might do it because the economy is still strong and stuff. You know, it, it continues to choke the Chinese. The same with Japan. Um, it causes or focuses on the Canadians trying to, hey, do we keep pace? I know, Rich, you're going to talk a little bit about what's happening with the European data points right now. But the, um, you know, we joke about the panda in the room, which we don't mean to be funny about because it's pretty serious what's happening over there right now. But let, let's be real here. It is the American story that is driving capital right now. So if the Yanks raise rates again, it's again, it's going to choke growth uh, elsewhere and attract more capital back into the U.S., uh, Keith, what's the what's the likely scenario? I know this is being recorded again on a Thursday, and so maybe this becomes completely irrelevant. But like, what's your what's your take? What's your what's the likelihood for for Jackson Hole here, Jay Powell's speech? I suspect he's going to sound his words will be hawkish. He's going to say, "Hey, the job is almost done. We'll continue to monitor the data, and we'll continue to raise rates if we do." They're still concerned about pricing in the labor market, which means wages and, and all that stuff. You know, we're getting close to the end, but, but we're not there, you know? So it's sort of neutral to hawkish. And I suspect the markets will interpret that as being dovish. So I think, I think maybe there's a <laughs> maybe there's a great rally going on right now, tomorrow, which is today. I mean, we are creating confusion with this, right? We are we keep, creating a lot yeah, of confusion. Yeah, we are. But I think our listener will understand what we're trying to say. What do you think happens, Rich? With, uh, well, I, with I agree tomorrow? with you. I was just thinking it's just the back to sort of just keeping people uh, you know, updated on sort of what the market's pricing in. And it's slowly but surely, I mean, maybe the message is coming through because, you know, we had the the the, the probability of hikes. Remember, these are calculated basically off, their, off of like different uh, forward curves and, and sort of um, a combination of derivatives and um, sort of implied futures prices and all kinds of math that I have no idea how they do it. But you're starting to slowly see sort of hikes get um, priced into the market. So maybe people are anticipating uh, Jerome Powell being more hawkish than I think Maybe we were certainly a month ago. I mean, that that's that's what I'm seeing. And if they do hike, because we have the September meeting coming up, um, boy, this puts a lot of a lot of other economies and markets in a very difficult position. Including, we covered the China story before, but uh, Europe is now lighting up again. So, anyone watching currency markets over the last three days? You know, we're, we're seeing, you know, from peak to trough, the peak moves one and a half, even 2% in some of these markets. Like, again, like everyone is sitting there trying to figure out what happens next with, with rates. I know we always sort of, you know, start with the Bank of Canada and move from there. But I think it's really important for everyone to appreciate what the Americans are doing because it will affect our yield curve, which then affects mortgage rates and, and things like that. How about you, Steve? What what are you uh, reading about? I'm just curious. I mean, Jackson the Bank Hall. of Canada, September 6th. I mean, just curious. Like, I think yeah, I would agree with you, Keith. I think the Fed probably still has another one or two in them. But I, I wonder... There's been a lot of conversation in the U.S. in particular around 
interest rates aren't necessarily passing through into the household channel. Right. Um, you know, you look at the U.S. Right. I mean, what, Rich? What is it? They had there was a brilliant chart that was circulating on Twitter the other day, which showed something like ninety-five percent of mortgages in the U.S. are like sub three point five percent or three. Yeah. I don't know if it was 95, but I mean, listen, let's just say for for the sake of argument, it was like three quarters of it were like less than four, which is incredible given that I think there's seven and a bit now. So you've got an entire generation of homeowners basically that are completely unaffected by the change in mortgage rates. Um, And yeah, it's something we discussed, Steve, uh, before. So it's not so much really important what the exact numbers are. I'm saying that because I don't have them in front of me. But the, the issue really is that it's just it's it's very, very um it's just they're just not being affected. However, that's that's a little unfair though, in to say in well, in sort of uh, before you I'll I'll add to that later. Go for it, go for it. Tell, get us yeah, no, I yeah, I, I just when I when I mentioned that, I just look at it and say, well, like and then you look at Canada, right? I mean, like, yeah, your longer more or less your longest mortgage rates five years. And so I think like the the interest rate sensitivity. Um, you know, and the household sector is already more indebted than the, than the U S like, you know, look at like all these other countries, right? Like there's been a lot of chatter, uh, in Australia, for example, which I would say is a, a similar situation as Canada, uh, very, uh, housing heavy, highly yeah. indebted, um, short-term interest rates on, on, on most of that debt. And if you look at, uh, retail sales, uh, in Australia, I mean, they are horrible. Um, and, and Canada's numbers just came out. You strip out basically gas prices that went up and, and, and car sales, which are kind of lagging retail sales continue to roll over. So I struggle to see a scenario where, I mean, maybe the bank of Canada might want to keep pace, but I just think that, uh, Canada is going to roll over well before the U S. I mean, you said Canadian economy is going to roll over before the U S or the bank of Canada will. Ah, uh, Canadian economy for sure. And then does that put pressure on the BOC? Like, I just think obviously, obviously, yeah. you know, you're doing your best to keep pace um, with the Americans, but you know, and we've talked about it. I think you know the Americans are the cleanest, dirty shirt. You know, the um, one of the economic surveys for Canada came out over the last few days. I don't know which day it came out on, um, but there were I think seven respondents. And they're all from Scotiabank. No, <laughs> no, they were spread out across the big banks and a couple other shops. But it, it's it's interesting. One of the big data points that came out of that survey uh, is oh, a chance of recession happening over the next twelve months is now forty five percent. Forty five. Everybody, but everybody. Yeah. So now we have a fifth. Yeah, like things are the, 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 even that the estimates or everything is getting a little bit weaker. And so the, this is an interesting fact for people to know. So the um, the professional associate, no, the Association of Professional Economic Forecasters. I think that's the right name for it. Yep. Um, Rich has been dying to get accepted into that group. <laughs> no, no, that was. I, they're always they're always wrong. They're always and, uh, always wrong. <laughs> anyway, but it's an American group and. So I think it's been in existence since 69 or 70, something like that. 
And it's their job, basically, you get the consensus number, you know, where's where's GDP growth going to be, you know, for the American. And since they've started, I think there's been nine or 10 recessions over the last, uh, what are we looking at? 30, no, 30 years, 40 years, what are we looking 50 years now. And so just say there's been nine recessions in total. This group has predicted zero of them, right? They've, they've never been right. Um, which means it's either it's really hard to predict a recession or the inherent bias towards positive growth all the time. You never want to predict, you know, a bad number. I think that's in there as well. But if you look at their estimates, not only do they ever like not correctly predict a recession, their average estimate has never been negative either. So it's always got, you got this positive, you know, influence in there. So with the Canadian survey here, and there's only seven people involved with it. Um, so even that they're, their their average economic growth for twenty four coming out uh, is zero point eight. So they're saying we're going to slow down. We're going to go from say one and a half percent in twenty three down to half of that next year. And there's a fifty percent chance that we do roll into a recession. I think the Bank of Canada will be thrilled with that environment because yeah. it you know it is telling you hey we get this soft landing everyone wanted, but you know you start you know looking through the weeds and everything that 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 ain't going to help the housing market you know it ain't really going to help wages and and all these other challenges that we're having in in the economy so um anyway that that's one thing that caught my attention plus the canadian banks started coming out with with earnings well speaking of banks keith how much stock do you put in pun intended but uh you know looking at uh KRE, so the the regional banking ETF uh, in the U.S. There, it's kind of back to back to levels last seen uh, when Silicon Valley Bank um, imploded there, and uh, you know you've seen the price action more recently in Citigroup. You've seen the you know some of some of these downgrades to these banks as well. I mean, is that the the market starting to sniff something out? Yeah, you you always have to look at the the relative performance of bank stocks. What do I mean by that? You you take the, the bank stock index relative to say for the Americans, you know, relative to the S and P in Canada, you might want to do it, you know, to the TSX, but it's a Canadian stock index, by the way, guys, it's a very um, imbalanced, unbalanced index. It was so heavy with energy stocks on one side and, and financials on, on the other. But if you look, uh, if you just switch over the Canadian story, for example, you pull up the five-year chart on any of the bank stocks, uh, it's weak. Like they are headed in in the wrong direction. And they're always forward-looking, you know, the equity markets are. And if we have the part of the economy that provides capital or credit to the economy, and if that's weak, and then they're contracting, because RBC, they announced, you know, they're going to lay off people, I think it's 2% of their headcount they're going with. Uh, you look at the provisioning on the loan losses, how much are they lending out and everything. It, it, it does point towards, you know, things are getting tighter. And in the US, the story is a little bit different, because a lot of investors are saying, wow, I don't trust the small to mid-sized banks. Uh, maybe the Silicon Valley story hits their banks, something like that. So the money is flowing up to the big guys, and that gives them a huge advantage then with with funding costs. On but you have to be uh, careful though, because and stuff. you have to be careful though, because small bank deposits have been rising all summer. 
Um, and so, you know, a lot of these worries that we had about whether or not these banks were going to go bankrupt or whatever, I think that that was totally overblown. Um, I, I mentioned it at the time and I, I'm re reiterating it now. And the way that one way that you can look at one of the issues that they had and one of the issues that they were trying to stem with the U.S. banks is with the deposit flight. Right. When the, and the banks are extremely highly levered. They have a lot of um, assets on one side of the balance sheets and liabilities and equities on the, on the other side. And, you know, they when you start your assets start to go away, e.g. your deposit starts to flow out, then it puts a lot of pressure on your equity holders and what have you. So that's reversed a lot. And so you can see the small bank deposits are starting to rise. The other thing I think what's important to note is that there is sort of a credit crunch going on in the U.S., but you know, most of the lending for the real estate market in the United States, I understand it's constrained because there's not enough housing supply in the US and similar way as Canada, but it, there's a, it's a spread. So you have the mortgage rate over, let's say, the a bond rate. And so the US, they lend on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, uh, contrasted with Canada, which is only five. And the mortgage rate spread over the 30-year bond is the highest it's ever been on my chart. So that's a 45-year high. That's the, yeah, sorry, 45-year high. It's 3%, which is incredible. So these banks, it's not the, so, you know, the, there is some appetite for lending. It's just, you got to figure out where it is and how it is. And the other thing I think is really important to note is that all Canadian banks are not created equal. So, you know, we, we treat sort of the Canadian banks as this amorphous blob. But each bank will have a significantly different exposure to the Canadian housing market um, to, uh, relative to other ones. So the way that you look at that is just simply looking at their assets and liabilities. And some of the assets are like loans to residential mortgages. So BMO, I know, is at the bottom of that list. And I think it's only like 20% of their loan book is from residential mortgages. And at the top of the list, you might have CIBC or whatever. I can't remember the exact name chart because my computer is too slow and I can't load it <laughs> for some reason. But it's just you have to be careful about sort of lumping all of the Canadian banks together. We know that, for example, TD has an enormous asset management business in northeastern United States. I mean, if you if you watch hockey and know hockey, there's the, something called the TD Garden where the Boston Bruins go suck every year, and we hate the Boston Bruins. But the you know they have an enormous business in that part of the world, um, and so you just have to be careful about. Um, and I'm sure that'll come up in the in the non-performing loans and the provisioning and stuff like that. So sometimes I know we only five banks in Canada, and we all truly treat them the same, and we pretend they are the same. And in many ways, they really they are the same, but they're not, you know, they, they have different businesses, Keith. And so that's why I thought it was, it was important to sort of add that color. That yeah. Line. I kind of, I kind of disagree with that paintbrush. What I think they they literally think have different banks, asset holdings. No, Canadian banks today are more homogenized than, than ever. And what I mean by that, if, if we get any kind of a, a funding crisis on the curve, all the banks are going to suffer. Money is just going to flow out of the Canadian dollar, flow out of the bond market. Their, their balance sheets just get whacked. I think in a in a normal economic cycle, what what you shared with us is is correct. But my fear that this is not a normal cycle. Again, like we've gone from zero to five percent in in eighteen months, and as, as as soon as we do hit something that's a bit nasty out there, money just runs. I mean, it, it doesn't sit around and try to figure out. You know which bank has this exposure and, and that exposure, and that's the real risk. Like, because if you look at the bank stocks now, like in the five-year chart, um, you know one of them with the blue shirt is is has done a lot better on a relative basis than than the others, but two or three of them, I think two of them are now down back below the pre-COVID level. 
Yeah. I'm not saying names, of course. You you could you could pull up the charts and see them. Uh, I think another one is just sitting on that line as well. Like we're again, like we're in this weak moment here. And if you look at markets today, which again is you know Thursday before you know the Friday Powell speech and everything, you know the the U.S. dollar is ripping higher again. Even everyone's we got to talk about the brick story, weren't we? Going to talk about that we mentioned that earlier. Oh right? yeah, we'll get, we'll but get the last yeah we had a really interesting uh, currency phenomena there two or three days ago, where uh, you know euro yen CAD and and Aussie they, like they were they were just getting smoked by the dollar. And meanwhile, uh, Brazil Real, um, as well as Peso and, and Rand, as well as South African Rand, these were ripping higher, you know, because you had you had all that euphoria building up, you know, and these BRICS guys are going to create their own currency. I know Rich is all over it. Like, Rich can't wait to move to these places and, and buy, no, the, buy the FX gonna... and all that. But uh, again, like back to the Canadian story, there's... There's stuff happening here that's being driven by movements outside, which goes back to Steve's point all the time. Like, because obviously you're leading quite a bit now with, you know, what's the five year mortgage rate, which is really just a, a take on the five year uh, bond. And, and I know you talk about the 10 year, maybe that's a good time to buy it at some point. But it, it, I, I just think we're at this, you know, pivotal moment. And the second half of the year could be a, a complete mirrored image. To the first half of the year, yeah. And the first half be... was good. So, Rich, when you look in the mirror, you're getting a reverse image, right? You know that. I, I think, it, yeah. I mean, I think it's setting up to be a doozy. You know, Rich, I just wanted to finalize our our U.S. housing thing here because we talked about Warren Buffett's, uh, you know, big buy into these U.S. home builders last week on the podcast. So, the data that came out uh, a couple of days ago showing that new homes made up 31% of all home sales in the second quarter, uh, highest share on record for any Q2 that's in the U.S. So again, like the, the home builders obviously haven't had any competition. And so uh, it's, that's where the, the inventory story has, has continued to play out because these people are basically, you know, sitting on 30-year fixed-rate mortgages at, you know, three, three and a half, four percent. Um, and so it hasn't freed up any housing inventory, and in which I, I think ultimately, let's call it what it is, is making the, the Fed's job much more challenging. Um it's just harder to, you know, monetary policy works with legs and and obviously uh, you know, when it's just harder to pass through those those debt servicing costs if if people are locked into their houses. I think speaking of of lags, I think we may, maybe we can spend just a few minutes about uh, with Europe. Is that okay? Sure. And what I what I mean by the lag part of it, you know, the ECB, uh, you know, they've been lagging that the Fed with the size of their rate increases, and you know when they started and stuff like that. And where where's the ECB now, Rich? What, what what's their overnight oh, rate? Three seventy five. Three seventy five off of memory. That was my guess. Let me double check. Three three seventy five. Do I hear four 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 and a quarter? <laughs> uh, anyway, you know, of course, the Fed is a bit higher than that. And they've been talking hawkish. Remember, so is the Fed. And the challenge right now, though, is like where is the Fed is you know, looking and hoping to see weaker data, because that's what everybody wants, even here in Canada, the Bank of Canada, they want to see the labor market roll over, you know, and, and all that stuff. Um, so whereas the Americans are hoping to get weak data, and it's not really happening. 
what's happening in Europe? This is your moment, Rich. This is really oh me. Gotta... Sorry. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, the data is really not good. Um, I mean, yeah. again, it depends on what you're looking at, of course. But the stuff that came out yesterday really sort of took me for a loop. Uh, we've talked about diffusion indices uh, a lot, um, and they came out in Europe. And so France, Germany, the UK, and also the global one. Um, it wasn't so hot for the US, but we'll get to that later. Um, so we've talked about different types of diffusion indices. One of them is obviously manufacturing. Services a much larger share of the economy. And I think not one... And that's right. Not one of them is above 50. So of the three for France, the three for Germany, the three for Europe, obviously that includes France and Germany. Um, and then the UK, not one of them is above 50. And many of them fell much more than expected. And so basically it just tells you sort of um, what we've been discussing along a long time is that economies that are, for example, tied to China, Germany, um, have been doing are doing very, very badly. And even France, which has actually been more of a bright spot because it hasn't had the exposure to the energy problems. It has an incredibly strong labor market, believe it or not. Um, its equity market is luxury brands and sort of outside the industrial space. So it's actually been doing re relatively well. Even they are starting to sort of see some real weakness there. Um, so you know, and then we didn't, that doesn't even get into the whole lending issue. And like, so and loans to non-financial corporations and loans to mortgages, that's been coming off really significantly. I think it's negative in real terms, certainly, which is a big deal when it comes to lending. Um, and so, yeah, Europe is just, it's, it's really not looking very hot. So Rich, so, I got a question. Yeah. You, so China's not doing so well. Europe in turn is not doing so well. Right. Um, is that not a case for bonds? I mean, I think there's loads of reasons why you want to be <laughs> getting involved with bonds. Um, I think that that's one of them. I think, you, the, but the, the, I mean, the one of them is because you're finally getting paid to hold them. Real, real interest rates are in the twos and, and high, high ones. Um, you is know, the you high, how long, but that's the high, you know, real yeah, yields. It's the highest been, it's been, yeah, it's been the highest been 10 for 10 years or so. Yeah, for sure. Um, so real yields are offering you something. You got worries about um, your actual nominal yields are okay. I mean, obviously nominal yields, I think 4.2, whatever it in the US. Um, then you're worried about growth. But the problem is this, there's like another, that's like sort of why you might demand a bond. But then there's the supply. I mean, the US is running an 8% budget deficit. China, as, as Keith's pointed out many times, is selling off their, their treasury um, reserves or sorry, their, their reserves rather in the form of treasuries to prop up their their yuan, which is just uh, sorry, their yuan, which is under a lot of pressure. I think if we're not at a high, Keith, I think we're we're basically flirting with it. Um, and so you've got the balance between supply again, uh, and then and this demand. And I think that so yeah, I mean, are you is it interesting to be looking at bonds? I definitely think so. There's something called a, an equity risk premium, which is sort of the extra return that equity investors demand over buying sort of a risk free asset. That's quite an ephemeral sort of like, you know, uh, number that doesn't really exist, but a bunch of academics try to argue and try to figure out and model in any event, however you want to calculate it, it's basically at a 20 year low, um, meaning that the relative value from owning equities and bonds is basically the best it's been in a long, long time. Um, you know, Keith talks about a reversal of the first half of 2023, one of the ways that that could happen is sort of the equity market does badly and the bond market does well. So meaning bond yields go down. Really, really interesting. 
I, yeah, I, I think it's absolutely an interesting time to think about it. Um, but that's all of those arguments, though, where you could have made exactly six months ago, which makes this very, very tricky. So there you go. So that I mean, I think I think I just figured something out. Uh oh. So when you're going on a date, are you talking <laughs> about the bond market or are you talking oh, about God, the no. like AI stocks? Which, no, which AI one is stocks, it? AI stocks for sure. AI stocks. AI. Yeah. AI, AI yeah, stocks. Nobody gets excited, nobody gets excited about bonds. I know, right? That's the uh, well, it depends on which demographic you're not you're this decade, with. not this decade. Maybe you should go to the bingo halls on Saturday nights <laughs> and talk about the bond markets. Uh, Maybe that would be uh, a bit more successful. But the uh, sort of back to Europe though again. So I mean, the ECB are now in this really awkward position where growth is slowing down if inflation is still sticky it, it's not because of the demand side so raising rates doesn't do anything anymore so they could be on the verge of already getting stopped out you know that would be really the, the first major bank to have to admit it and if, if that happened because we're not like the euro i think euro peaked at maybe 112 six weeks ago four weeks ago i, I don't know how long ago it was there and now it's you know it's it's sort of having a race with the yen over the last week, and to go lower and lower here. But again, if if the Yanks raise rates uh, and the ECB doesn't, or they sound you know dovish, it, it's going to be really tough. So Europe is is like back on my screen again. Something I'm, I'm watching. But in the bond world, if you're going to buy a European bond, again, there is no federal eurozone bond to buy it doesn't exist so what that makes very different than compared to say the americans or here in canada because you know we have a federal government bond you know the americans have treasuries of course china you cannot buy any chinese bonds in japan you can't really buy them because you know the, the bank of japan holds them all so you dive into europe and you want you're going to say ah, you know what the economy is coming off you know i heard rich kind of likes the bond market during bingo when he's playing Bingo so night. do you buy do you buy the German one or the French or the Spanish Italian you know what like what, what what do you do well and the German it, one yeah and the only ones buying it would be like inter European money it has to stay in in the eurozone but a foreign investor is not going to run out and buy it because what's what's the yield on the German tenure now rich oh I don't know rich. I mean I when I when I talk about the bond market just to be clear I mean the US Treasury note uh, I mean the 10-year US Treasury bond. of I course mean, I, I know I know that as well oh, okay, I'm just sorry. sort of I'm just sort of beating up on on the sorry uh, it's 2.5 percent in Germany in, in the US uh I see the same number yeah two and yeah. a half so if you're a foreign investor are you going to buy one that's paying out two and a half or do you want to rather have a uh, a four and a quarter yield right and you know that if you buy the two and a half yield, you're going to lose on the FX side as well. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. Yeah. yeah. So again, it, it's a it's a tough position, you know, that again, that the world is sort of headed towards. And no one's expecting a recession. <laughs> no one. The no landing camp. Well, no I mean, landing. They've been, but they've been right. I mean, that's that's the thing that makes these markets so particularly interesting. And when you get decent equity, you get decent... Uh, when you get decent earnings out of one of the biggest, most important tech names in the world, you know, it it, it props up the market and, and it sort of pushes this recession talk further down the road, which is what, but I mean, you know, 
that's why if they, this is why like yeah part of our job is being right and being right at the exact same right time because being early is the same as being wrong and that's what's been so fascinating about this year because again a lot of these arguments you could have made you know three and six months ago which is slowing europe china's in trouble us is getting tighter on the credit space the labor market's slowing down um and and yet what we saw was bonds sold off and equities rallied into that news. Um, so it's, you know, Keith, I mean, are you really sure that the next six months are going to be the reversal of that? Uh, yes. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> oh, that's too you didn't us. hesitate. <laughs> yes is the answer to your question. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Do you remember the movie Absolute? Love Actually, yeah. Do you remember that yeah. movie, Love Actually, yeah, I from, do. from a long time ago? One of my favorite scenes is uh, Mrs. Ice Cap and I, we, we like that movie. And uh, one of my favorite scenes is when um, the character, uh, the Hugh Grant, was it? No, not Hugh Grant. Um, Colin Firth character. You know, he, he, he chased after the, I think it was a Portuguese lady or Spanish, I forget where she was from. And he went to the restaurant and he's down at the bottom and she's up in the second floor and in Spanish, I think it was, or Portuguese, whatever he, he spoke to her, he, he proposed to her, you know, and uh, of course she responds in English because she was also trying to learn his language. And her response was, yes, is my answer to your question. So <laughs> my answer to your question, Steve, is is yes. It's amazing where it's your brain goes. It's a great scene. Yeah, I know, right? It's It's full of it. You've got more. You've of, got more movie quotes dialed in than I do. I thought yeah. I was. I thought I was good. It's kind of funny. Uh, uh, you were talking about France and Germany there uh, earlier. You know, one economy is more dependent on China than the other, and one's dependent on Russia. You know, and so <laughs> again, this is the way my mind works on a loony hour. I'm thinking. Um, remember that song by the Killers, Mr. Brightside? Love that song. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, song. yeah. I'm thinking. Okay, in that song with the lyrics, would it does it apply more to the French or the Germans? I can't decide. Oh man, I have no idea what you're talking about. You're strange. You're strange, dude. That's why we love you. I think that's a good place to to cap it off. Give everybody a break. But next uh, next week we can talk about the BRICS and the the U.S. dollar reserve. Yeah, Rich. Rich is not a believer. Let's put it that way. He, yeah, I'm with guys. Rich as well on that one. Hour. I'm with Rich. And don't forget, Ice Cap uh, Beer Garden. We'll be uh, reliving those those moments next week as well. The Ice Cap Beer Garden. It's nothing that goes uh, Tuesday night. What a strange time for a beer garden. But uh, nonetheless, be there. Be square. If you guys want access, just uh, send Keith, a direct email. It's not hard to find on the uh, Looney Hour. LooneyHour.ca is the official website if you haven't checked it out. And uh, as always, we appreciate the support. We'll see you next week.